0: Hey folks, Aaron here. Today I am the bearer of bad news. This episode of Grim and Mild presents will be the last—not just of this season, but of the show. We've covered so much over the past four seasons, and I hope that our journey through the high seas and the backroads of America have helped you gain a better understanding of who we are as a people and how nuanced and textured our history is as a nation. If this storytelling style is something that you have connected with over the past couple of years, fear not. There are other shows of mine. That you can jump right into. Cabinet of Curiosities is still going strong, over 120 million downloads into its journey. And of course, my dark history podcast, Lore, is quickly approaching its ninth anniversary with close to 300 episodes that are guaranteed to leave you feeling a few chills down your spine. There are others too. Back in August, the Grim and Mild team and I launched a brand new weekly show called That's Just Weird, covering weird news from the past and present, along with one big weird news story each week. And our brand new show called Harlots, which explores the intersection of sex and power throughout history, is wrapping up its first season in just a few weeks here. And all of those shows, Lore, Cabinet of Curiosities, That's Just Weird, and Harlots are all available everywhere you get your podcasts. You can learn more about all of those shows and so many others from our past over at GrimAndMild.com. And now, on with the show. To American settlers, the West was a land of opportunity. Its soil was rich with nutrients for growing all kinds of crops. Its hills and mountains were teeming with fortune just one heave of the pickaxe away. But even after the gold rush had ended and East Coast transplants moved back home with their sifting pans between their legs, California still had more to offer. In 1915, a whole new group of people set out West to seek their fortune and their freedom thanks to one man. Thomas Edison. Filmmakers had gotten their start in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which was right across the Hudson River from New York. The land was cheaper than it was in the city, yet still close enough for Broadway actors to take the ferry over to make movies. But New Jersey was also home to the kinescope patent holder Thomas Edison. The kinescope was the first motion picture camera, invented primarily by Edison's employee William Kennedy Dixon. But Edison held the patent, and he wielded it, along with many others like a sword against every filmmaker on the East Coast. In 1907, Edison partnered with several other patent holders like camera company Biograph and film manufacturer Eastman Kodak to create the Motion Picture Patents Company, otherwise known as the Edison Trust. This cartel licensed its patents out to six of America's largest filmmakers so they could make their movies. But those films could not be sold directly to distributors. All films had to be rented from the trust, and because all aspects of the process were owned, essentially by one man, that meant that Edison now had a monopoly on filmmaking. And he went after anyone caught violating his patents, too. Movie houses that showed non-MPPC films were technically violating the law thanks to a 1907 court case, and sometimes they found themselves shut down by U.S. Marshals for doing so. If a filmmaker or distributor still didn't get the hint, Edison would send gangsters and hired goons to remind them about the patents. There were also arbitrary and punitive rules dictating film lengths and what kind of movies could even be made. It was stifling, as you can imagine. So filmmakers started looking for a way out. And around 1915, they found it, 3,000 miles away in California, which was the ideal location for movie making. The weather was perfect for filming year round, the landscape was diverse. Land was cheap and there was plenty of labor to help build the new industry in a new place, far from the miserly grasp of Thomas Edison. And what's more, California's court system often sided with small independent outfits over large companies when it came to patent disputes, and enforcing those patents from across the country was going to be almost impossible for Edison and his trust. The final blow to the inventor's chokehold on the film industry came that same year, when the Supreme Court issued a ruling on the MPPC. It said, A patentee may simply enforce his right to exclude infringement, but he must not use his patent as a weapon to disable a rival contestant or to drive him from the field, for he cannot justify such use. In other words, Edison's reign of terror was over. Filmmakers were now free to make the kinds of movies they wanted, and now they could do it in the ideal location. One that harkened back to a time not so long before when cowboys roamed the range. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to the Wild West. In 1962, Paramount Pictures released the John Ford Western, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. The film stars Jimmy Stewart as an old frontier lawman who tries to bring in a local outlaw without resorting to violence. When the outlaw, played by Lee Marvin, is shot dead in a fight, Stewart's character believes that he has done the deed. In reality, his friend, played by John Wayne, had killed the outlaw to save the lawman's life. Stewart's character eventually confesses the truth to an editor at his hometown newspaper, but the editor refuses to print it. When asked why, the editor says, this is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Throughout this fourth season of Grimm and Mild Presents, we have examined the beloved tropes of Western culture, back when good men walked tall and wore tin stars on their chests. But that image of the lone gunslinger protecting his town from the criminal element is fiction, a legend. It's the product of nostalgia for good old days that never really existed. They were painted into our memories by directors like Ford or Sergio Leone or Howard Hawks, directors who didn't know it at the time but were shaping the way that the Wild West would be remembered for years to come. That period feels like a glitch in the timeline, both older than it really was and yet close enough to be romanticized. According to the U.S. Census Bureau of 1890, the country still had a frontier up at that time, and then suddenly it didn't. Three years later, the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago featured a city illuminated by electricity as well as a 264-foot-tall observation wheel, the original Ferris wheel. Meanwhile, as the exposition pulsed with current, the American Historical Association was conducting a meeting not too far away, and somewhere in a sweltering room, a young professor named Frederick Jackson Turner stood up to speak. And I've mentioned him in previous episodes this season, but Let's go deeper into his story. He was only 31 years old at the time, but wise beyond his years. Turner believed that the frontiers of the Midwest and Western United States had been the catalyst for true independence for the American people. To him, the Wild West had been an outlet for the violent tendencies of Westerners, and that without it, Americans would lose the hardiness that allowed them to be self-reliant go-getters. Turner's audience, however, was indifferent to his message, likely wondering if they'd be done in time to catch Buffalo Bill's last performance. Turner's frontier thesis didn't make much of a splash at first. It was lost amongst the other news coming out of the exposition. But after several years, his idea finally found its way into everything from American politics to high school history and literature. His theory was well on its way to reshaping and rewriting American life which was exactly what he had wanted. At first. By the time his frontier thesis had reached public consciousness, he had already realized that he was wrong the whole time. And as with many ideas, once it got out, there was no putting it back. Those ideas eventually leached into everything from dime store novels and radio shows about life on the range to Wild West shows. Audiences flocked to see Buffalo Bill Cody and Annie Oakley put on the routinest, tootinous live performances in the country, ones that romanticized the frontier while making light of the Native Americans' plight. Those who couldn't make it to a live show or didn't care to read could listen to tales of honor and justice each week on the radio. These audio plays followed the same formula as their dime novel counterparts. There was always a hero, usually a man, who stood as the law in a lawless town. Maybe he was the marshal or a sheriff, Or a lone ranger using his wits and his sharpshooting skills to keep outlaws and bandits at bay. And in the process, the Western as a genre became the quintessential venue for a showdown between good and evil. And as the entertainment industry shifted its focus from radio to film, those showdowns got a whole lot more dramatic. Early silent films weren't just vehicles for fictional gunslingers, Edison's earliest shorts captured reenactments from Buffalo Bill's Wild West show viewers could catch a glimpse of Annie Oakley giving a demo of her sharpshooting skills, or of a Native American performing a traditional buffalo dance. Before John Wayne or Gary Cooper put on their spurs, Americans got to see a version of the Wild West that they had only dreamed about. Not long after these Edison films debuted, Edwin S. Porter filmed the very first western, The Great Train Robbery, At only 11 minutes long, it told the sordid and bloody story of a violent robbery aboard a locomotive. And it was only the beginning, too. The great train robbery led the way for an entire genre of motion pictures that appealed to all kinds of people, but mostly conservative Americans longing for the good old days when men were men and the law was respected. At least, that's how they saw it. In reality, the Western was about to become a metaphor for doing the right thing against a corrupt system of oppression, a standing alone for what was right, when everyone else was saying that it was wrong. Toward the end of the 1920s, as silent films evolved into talkies, the Western genre remained a mainstay of the medium. It consistently brought comfort and peace to a nation contending with the socio-political strife of an economic depression and war. As the world continued to change, Americans turned to Westerns to feed their nostalgic cravings for a time that never really existed, and Hollywood was only too happy to oblige. The genre was deceptively deep, allowing writers and directors to inject their stories with agendas and messages meant to sway the movie-going public toward their causes an audience could find just about anything they liked, be it romance, gunfights, or even horror. When we think of Hollywood westerns, we think of their golden age, namely the period from the 1950s through the mid-1970s. This is when actors such as John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and Clint Eastwood donned their Stetson hats and six-shooters to protect small one-horse towns. The Wild West of these golden age films, though, was truly a frontier for freedom for white Americans. They embodied the promise of manifest destiny, but only on the surface. Behind the scenes, that appearance of freedom came at a great cost thanks to the Hays Code. The Hays Code was a set of rules that Hollywood imposed on itself to appease powerful religious organizations who believed the movie industry was nothing but a den of sin. Before the Code, filmmakers depicted sex and violence on film without much regard for who might be watching. After 1936, Offensive language, sex, adultery, sacrilege, and extreme violence were outlawed thanks to the Code's strict governance. Of course, some films managed to slip through the cracks with content that otherwise would not have been approved, and the Code itself was updated over time. But for two decades, if a director wanted to get his movie seen by American audiences, it had to get the green light from the Hayes office. Over time, Hollywood's self-censorship became less of a priority don't get me wrong, the Hayes Code was still being enforced well into the 1960s. But there was another threat waiting in the wings. One that, according to the United States government, was even more sinister than a pistol full of blanks and a roll of 35mm film. Communism America's opposition to communism began during the 1930s but took off in earnest following World War II. The Soviet Union had been our allies during the war. But things changed when all the nations returned to their respective corners of the world. A task force was formed called the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC. It was charged with flushing out communists and communist sympathizers from all facets of American life, including the government itself and Hollywood. Now, the House Un-American Activities Committee couldn't punish anyone for being a communist thanks to the First Amendment, but they could hold individuals in contempt for refusing to testify— And people who invoked their Fifth Amendment right to avoid self-incrimination, or who did not hand over the names of other alleged communists, were blacklisted by their employers. And perhaps no one is more remembered for such a thing than the Hollywood 10, a group of 10 screenwriters who refused to testify before the House on American Activities Committee and then name names. Because they held firm to their principles, the Hollywood 10 were cited for contempt of Congress and spent a whole year in prison. But things didn't get any better once they were released. Some of the men left the industry entirely, while others continued to write under fake names. For example, one guy named Dalton Trumbo wrote the 1956 film The Brave One under the pseudonym Robert Rich. So how did one screenwriter find himself in the crosshairs of the House Un-American Activities Committee during the Red Scare, especially when he was writing one of the greatest American Western films of all time? After all, It featured an honorable lawman standing alone against evil, an ideal example of the genre's spirit. Well, not everyone thought so, especially one conservative actor known for his portrayal of macho cowboys and for his questionable beliefs. Carl Foreman had written a number of films before 1951, including war pictures, noirs, and literary adaptations. He was a skilled screenwriter who knew how to tell a good story, and one year after the end of World War II, he decided to tell a new kind. He drafted a four-page outline of a revisionist western about a lone sheriff standing up against a band of outlaws. Now, for those that don't know, revisionist westerns sort of tossed aside the American individualism and ideals of the older films within the genre, choosing instead to bring light to the corruption and moral ambiguity of the bygone era. Foreman had a solid narrative in his back pocket, but by 1947 it became clear that it was very similar to another story, a work of short fiction published in Colliers by John Cunningham titled The Tin Star. So, Foreman bought the rights to the story and got to work on a screenplay, pulling from both his outline and Cunningham's piece. It was called High Noon, and it was about more than just good versus evil. This was an allegory about global unification against tyranny. It was a statement in support of democracy. Now, we don't need to understand the intricacies here, but just know this. Such a plot would have been plenty popular during the war. But after rampant anti-communist attitudes took hold in the late 40s, things had changed. Foreman was at the top of his game in 1951, and he continued to plug away at the script. He was working for a well-regarded production company. He'd been nominated twice for Best Screenplay, and he had just moved into a Brentwood College once owned by Orson Welles and Rita Hayworth. And then it happened. Foreman opened his mailbox to a letter printed on pink paper. It had come from Washington. He had been summoned to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Now, Foreman had two options. He could fully cooperate with their investigation and give up the names of any supposed communists that he might know. Or he could lie, hide, and try to muddle the truth as much as possible. Unfortunately, the proof was already there. Carl Foreman had been a member of the American Communist Party from the years 1938 until 1942. And he hadn't been the only one. A number of Hollywood writers and actors had joined the party around that time. But Foreman left after he enlisted to serve in World War II. Now he had to choose between being a rat or killing his career, and neither option was ideal. Luckily for him, he didn't have to appear right away. His appointment with Congress wouldn't be for another few months, so he continued to work on High Noon. And the more he considered the story, the more he thought of his immigrant family, of his socialist mother, of the Great Depression and how it had ended their business and wiped out their fortunes. They had swung hard left politically because of the crash, and Foreman was no different. He knew that the blacklist was going to devastate Hollywood and the country as a whole, so he came to a decision, one that would change his life and the landscape of the Western genre in Hollywood forever. He tweaked the plot of High Noon to reflect the current American political climate. His protagonist, a marshal named Will Kane, would represent Foreman himself, a solitary force of good going up against the bandits of the House Un-American Activities Committee. The townspeople that Kane failed to recruit to help him take on the outsider threat were now Foreman's fellow screenwriters and other professionals, who stood idly by as the government brought its boot down on him. But Carl Foreman had a supporter who also felt the pressure of Washington's anti-communist committee. His name was Stanley Kramer. Kramer was the producer of the film and Foreman's friend, He had signed a five-year, 30-film deal with Columbia Pictures, which had been a major milestone for his fledgling company. But Foreman now had a major target on his back, and every day he continued to work on the project, that bullseye widened a little more to include Kramer himself. But just like Carl Foreman, Stanley Kramer had a choice to make. He could stay true to his friend and risk his production company, or cut Foreman loose and destroy the man's career it didn't help that Carl had never written a Western before. And the picture's director, Fred Zeinerman, had never directed one. But this wasn't a shoot 'em up like the Westerns of old. This was a character-driven story with sharp dialogue and tightly-wound suspense, the latter of which was emphasized by the frequent appearance of ticking clocks throughout the film, each of them counting down to the 12 p.m. mark, when the protagonist's enemy was scheduled to finally make his appearance. To play the harried marshal, Will Kane, Kramer hired Gary Cooper. Cooper had been a big star in the years prior, but hadn't been doing so well career-wise for some time and saw great potential in High Noon's script. His love interest was played by an up-and-comer that you may or may not have heard of, Grace Kelly, the future princess of Monaco. While the producers secured the cast and prepared the shoot, Carl Foreman's date with the House Un-American Activities Committee began to draw closer. Gary Cooper wound up befriending Carl over the course of their working together on the film, and even volunteered to speak before the committee on his behalf. But Foreman's lawyers refused to allow it. Finally, Stanley Kramer had had enough. Washington had been breathing down his neck for some time, so he confronted Carl Foreman with two demands. First, he needed to resign from High Noon. And second, he had to sell off his stock options in the picture. Foreman refused, though, which led to Kramer firing him anyway. But there was just one problem. Foreman hadn't signed a contract deferring his salary. This meant that the bank providing the film's financing could cut off access at any time, bringing production to a halt. Kramer's hand was forced. He rehired Foreman as writer and associate producer, but their friendship would never recover. On September 24th of 1951, Foreman's Judgment Day had finally arrived. He drove himself to the Los Angeles Federal Building for his hearing with the House Un-American Activities Committee. They asked him if he was a member of the Communist Party, which he answered truthfully, he was not currently a member of the party, as evidenced by the loyalty oath that he had just signed. But when he was asked if he had ever been a member prior to 1950, Foreman pled the fifth. He also wouldn't give up the names of any other communists that he knew. His testimony led to disastrous consequences for his career with stakeholders and company directors of High Noon legally removing all traces of him from the picture. Foreman also accepted $150,000 in exchange for his associate producer credit. Some felt that he should have held firm, but he needed the money. It didn't matter that he was one of the best screenwriters Hollywood had to offer. He was officially blacklisted, and now he was out of a job. Of course, Carl Foreman was not the only victim of the House Un-American Activities Committee. Around 500 members of the motion picture industry found themselves out of work for a decade or more. Some took their lives through suicide as a result, while others died from the stress. Studios also stopped pouring money into films that they felt had a political agenda. They simply didn't want to deal with the headaches from Washington, leaving movies like High Noon a rarity. But Stanley Kramer eventually saw the light after his partnership with Columbia dissolved. He went on to make 1958's The Defiant Ones with blacklisted screenwriter Nedrick Young. And when Young won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay alongside his co-writer Harold Jacob Smith, his identity remained public. Foreman, on the other hand, had to flee the United States and ended up in London. He went on to write Bridge on the River Kwai, in secret, along with his fellow blacklisted writer Michael Wilson. That film won the Oscar for Best Screenplay as well, but Foreman didn't receive credit for it until more than 30 years later. And meanwhile, High Noon had been a roaring success. It remained a popular Western for decades. Some, however, didn't appreciate its not-so-subtle message, namely John Wayne. Wayne was a staunch conservative and an outspoken member of an anti-communist group called the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals he led conservative Hollywood in a campaign against High Noon, calling it, and I quote, the most un-American thing I've seen in my whole life. He'd even been offered the role of Will Kane, but had turned it down because of what he considered to be the film's pro-communist sentiments. Although it could be argued that exercising one's First Amendment right to comment on the country's failings at the expense of freedom was probably the most American thing someone could do. Well, despite Wayne's vocal opposition of the film, High Noon went on to be nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay. But there was a problem. When the winners for the Best Actor category were announced, Gary Cooper, who had played the marshal Will Kane in the film, was overseas filming another project. Unable to accept the award himself, he asked a good friend to go on stage in his behalf, knowing that that friend would be in the audience. And so, as the name Gary Cooper rang in everyone's ears, one man rose from his seat and traveled down the aisle to the stage. He took hold of the golden statue, smiled, and said, I'm glad to see that they're giving this to a man who is not only most deserving but has conducted himself throughout his years in our business in a manner we can all be proud of. At the end of his speech, the audience applauded and the man sauntered off the stage. Oh, and the name of that friend that Gary Cooper had called in to take his place? It was the film's biggest critic and opponent. Fellow actor and Western legend, John Wayne. I truly do hope that you've enjoyed our journey through the Wild West over the past 13 episodes. It's a misunderstood and misrepresented period of American history, but my team and I firmly believe that the stories we presented to you offer a more accurate and more nuanced look at what really happened. And if you enjoyed today's exploration, of how Hollywood cashed in on the myth of the West, then you'll want to stick around through the sponsor break. We've saved one more powerful story, and my teammate Ali Steed will tell you all about it.
1: Nostalgia for the Wild West doesn't live in a vacuum, nor has it disappeared. It's still all around us, evident in television shows like Yellowstone, which presents a modern take on the sanitized, whitewashed, and ultra-violent version of what men like John Wayne thought the Wild West was actually like. Or in Westworld, where the audiences can live vicariously through characters who get to explore their wildest Wild West fantasies. Above all else, these shows leave viewers wondering, would I have been a hero with a badge on my chest? Or would I have been the outlaw, clad in all black and taking what I wanted? Well, once upon a time, for a little while, that question could have been easily answered in a place called Palisade, Nevada. It all started in the 1840s when a new railroad was proposed that would connect the east and the west coasts. Railroad executives didn't have time to waste on figuring out treaties or territorial rights, so they just started petitioning Congress. The concept was rejected year after year until the passage of the Railroad Act of 1862, which allowed the new track to be laid. The plan was to have the Central Railroad Company of California meet the newly created Union Pacific Railroad in the middle of the country. Construction began in 1863 with much of the labor being performed by immigrants from China and Ireland. Meanwhile, the government worked out with the railroad companies where new stations and, therefore, new towns would be built. There was no rhyme or reason to it. Pins were tossed onto maps with little regard for the viability of the towns that were being proposed. Some would thrive, while others would succumb to the dangers of frontier living. Gold fever back in the 1840s had helped flood the West with fresh blood, but towns that sprouted overnight seemed to disappear almost as quickly when those gilded promises were washed away like grit in the river. One town named Palisade was founded in 1868. It was meant to be a stop on the Central Pacific Railroad, which would bring people to and from Nevada. This included wealthy investors in the nearby silver mine. Palisade promised to become a prominent destination with folks coming through on their way to Chicago or San Francisco. Unfortunately, few passengers really stuck around and spent money there. It was a small town with a population of only 600 people, and other than the silver mine, there wasn't a lot to do. Word of their guests' disappointment made it back to the townsfolk, who understood what was missing. The full Wild West experience. You see, years earlier, pioneers had traveled out West and written to their friends and family and even to newspapers back East about their exciting adventures. Their readers had gotten a taste of the lawlessness and danger that was apparently prevalent in the Western boomtowns like Palisade. Unfortunately, when those visitors trekked out, they didn't exactly get the experience they were hoping for. So the citizens of Palisade decided to take matters into their own hands. In the early 1870s, when trains pulled into Palisade station, passengers could expect to see lawmen and outlaws having shootouts at high noon in the middle of the street. Bodies hit the floor while bank robbers made daring escapes in broad daylight. It was exactly what they read about in the news articles and dime novels. And it was completely fake. The whole town was in on it, including the pistols, the bank robberies. They'd even gotten animal blood from nearby slaughterhouses to sell the grisly death scenes. No one missed out on the fun. Even the local Shoshone tribe members got in on the action by performing raids on the town really selling battles with locals and pretending to scalp them at the end. Even railroad employees were known to sneak actors onto the trains to set everyone up before they pulled into Palisade. Funnily enough, despite the town's notoriety as a den of sin and violence, it had no sheriff. Over the course of these reenactments, more people were killed in Palisade than actually lived there. And the travelers were none too observant. They never noticed that they themselves weren't the targets of these ruthless outlaws. Over time, as the West was settled and fewer and fewer people were coming through looking for a show, Palisade and other boom towns folded up shop. The pops of gunshots were soon replaced with the eerie sound of wind whistling through a ghost town. A flood in 1910 decimated the area, and by the 1930s, the railroad had shut down as well. Buildings disappeared, leaving nothing behind but the land. But the name Palisade would grace American's lips a couple of more times before fading into complete obscurity. According to one legend, President Herbert Hoover was passing through in 1932 when his train was overcome by strangers armed with two dozen sticks of dynamite. Two men reportedly scuffled with the railroad inspector before running off. One inspector claimed there hadn't even been dynamite to begin with. Finally, in 2005, the heir to the town of Palisades sold it at auction for $150,000. It's not known who bought it, but according to one article, a whole lot of nothing in the middle of nowhere sold for $150,000, the most money ever paid for nothing that anyone could remember. Sadly, that's what remains of the Wild West today. Romantic notions of a time that never really existed—in other words, a whole lot of nothing.
0: Grim and Mild presents the Wild West was executive produced by me, Aaron Mankey, and hosted by Aaron Mankey and Alexandra Steed. Writing for this season was provided by Michelle Muto, with research by Alexandra Steed, Sam Alberti, Cassandra De Alba, and Harry Marks. Fact checking was performed by Jamie Vargas, with sensitivity reading by Stacy Partial Jensen. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about this and other shows from Grim & Mild and iHeartRadio, visit GrimAndMild.com.